Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Evolution Exposed Exposed series, posted August 18th, 2020, titled Evolution is Cancelled, featuring Dragnut Silvis and Gutsick Gibbon. We are putting on a conference called Evolution Exposed. We pulled in experts on the subject of evolution for a total of 11 speakers and gave them just 15 minutes to give us their best. And on top of all that, a one hour Q&A panel session. You're going to love Evolution Exposed. Anyone can refute evolution. You to the zoo, to me and you. Call that a fairy tale. Not allowed to ask questions. It made evolution look ridiculous. That was the foolishness of atheism. I yeah. knew I was going to get corrected. No, I wasn't even listening to your answer. <laughs> this guy might be coming for you. Welcome to Apologia and my series exploring the star-studded six-hour Evolution Exposed seminar from Ray Comfort's Living Waters Ministry. The premise of the seminar was simple gather 11 leading creationist speakers and each of them are going to do a 15-minute TED Talk style message followed by a group Q&A session. It was a long day, but how could I stay away from some of the best presenting their best, ranging from scientific ideas, philosophical ideas, biblical interpretations, methodological differences, to arguments of facts. But as someone who recently believed and affirmed everything taught in the seminar, I'm not going to attempt to take on this all-star team on my own. I'm going to enlist subject matter experts for each claim in fields of biology, geology, philosophy, theology, and more, all with a variety of belief backgrounds, from Christians to other theists to the secular. So, we're going to take our time with this series to give each claim its due, and hopefully this journey will be enjoyable and educational. You signed up for this conference, friends. You didn't know there was going to be free entertainment, but you got it. <laughs> so let's dive right in with our first speaker, a street preacher, video personality, and longtime figurehead in evangelical circles. I know the name of one dinosaur that'll be in heaven. It's called uh, Reyes Comfortus. <laughs> Mr. Ray Comfort. Ever studied the evolutionary chart? You know, that little chart that's so common of this little creature sort of bent over and then he sort of straightens up and he straightens up further straightens up further and he gets right up to this end on the right it's always to the right what's on screen is one of the thousands of variations created of an image commonly known as march of progress the original was illustrated by an artist named rudolph salinger for the 1965 publication called early man from time life books it is unfortunate that this image went on to be so iconically associated with the overall theory of biological evolution, because it is a fundamentally flawed and inaccurate representation. First, evolution is an entirely unguided process. The idea of progress is irrelevant and incorrect. The process of evolution increases survival in populations in the midst of changing environments. With the most recent ice age arrived, 
adaptation to cold weather wasn't progress in any kind of linear sense, just changing with the times. Second, the image depicts as linear what is decidedly not a straight line. Most of the hominid species depicted in the full image are not at all considered direct ancestors of Homo sapiens, but rather as cousins on other branches of the tree, and there's significant temporal overlap for these species. This step-by-step -step depiction gives the wrong idea of replacement. Indeed, the text on the page describes exactly what I've described. But who reads words when there's pictures, right? Author of the book, F. Clark Howell, remarked, The artist didn't intend to reduce the evolution of man to a linear sequence, but it was read that way by viewers. The graphic overwhelmed the text. It was so powerful and emotional. As Stephen Jay Gould explained in his chapter of Wonderful Life, condemning this image and the misconceptions it has wrought, life is a copiously branching bush, continually pruned by the grim reaper of extinction, not a ladder of predictable progress. Alright, so now we know that this image is an entirely false representation. What observation does Ray have about it? And it ends up with a white guy. Why is it a white guy? Why is it a white guy? Because you chose a version that has a white guy. It's because it's staying true to evolution. Staying true to Darwin's racism. The Homo sapien at the end of the line in the original Time Life illustration seems to have traditional African features rather than Caucasian features. At very least, the drawing is highly ambiguous. The March of Progress is one of the most replicated and most parodied images in the whole world. You name the thing, and there's probably a version of this image that contains it. Homer Simpson, a pig, an atheist, robots, insects, and on and on. And more often than not, it's drawn in silhouette. Ray, should I draw some kind of similar conclusion about the racial attitudes of Christianity? simply because I can bring up illustrations of Jesus depicted as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Scandinavian, rather than with the Middle Eastern features he almost certainly had as a first-century Jew, argument from artist interpretation isn't strong. In these days of unprecedented racial sensitivity, it'd be good to look closely at this man and what he believed and what he taught, because his racist teachings have shaped the beliefs, the worldviews, of the godless majority of today's university students. To argue that the ideas of someone must be wrong because they are disliked or have character flaws is known as the genetic fallacy. The source of a proposition is irrelevant to the truth of the proposition. Of course, Darwin didn't actually invent evolutionary theory. He mostly popularized it. And modern evolutionary theory has changed significantly since those beginnings. For all these reasons and more, the personal life of Charles Darwin is entirely irrelevant to the science. Here's a quote from a thesis from Williams University. Sorry about the length of this quote, but it's very relevant. It's um, Darwin's book, The Descent of Man, and this is what it says. Quote, here his white supremacy is revealed. Over the course of the book, Darwin describes Australian Aborigines, Mongolians, Africans, Indians, South Americans, Polynesians, and Eskimos as savages. It becomes clear that he considers every population that is not white and European to be savage. The word savage is disdainful. And Darwin constantly elevates white Europeans above the savages. 
Darwin explains that, quote, the highest races and the lowest savages differ in moral disposition and in intellect. That is, they're immoral and they are not as intelligent as the white folks. And then it continues, quote, as white Europeans exterminate and replace the world's savage races, and as great apes go extinct, Darwin says that the gap between civilized man and his closest evolutionary ancestor will widen. The gap will eventually be between civilized man and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of, as at present, between the Negro or Australian Aborigine and the gorilla. That's page 221 of The Descent of Man. Ray Comfort has taken to quote mining again. This time, he takes an excerpt from an essay done by an undergraduate in literary theory taught at Williams University and attempts to pass it off as someone's thesis. Besides his mischaracterization, the essay itself paints Darwin as a racial bigot who promoted white supremacy within his body of work. Let's not pretend as though people during the 1800s had a very high opinion of those of other races, but Darwin and his family were quite different as they were staunch abolitionists. The following is a quote found within the same source materials Comfort's misbegotten quote. Slavery, although in some ways beneficial during ancient times, is a great crime. Yet it was not so regarded until quite recently, even by the most civilized nations. And this was especially the case because the slaves belong in general to a race different from that of their masters. Hmm. During this time period, there were many missteps within the realm of science and human rights. Yet, Comfort's contrived issues here are not one of them. The machinations of racial discrimination existed long before Darwin was born, with science occasionally contributing to them, phrenology being one example. Such concepts made their way out of the scientific sphere due to the lack of evidence and not divine intervention. There is, however, a bit of irony with Comfort's assertions. Two years after On the Origins of Species was published, John Henry Hopkins, the eighth bishop of the Episcopal Church, wrote The Bible View of Slavery, where he openly justifies the practice and criticizes abolitionists. Get that. Read the last line again, if you missed it. Darwin's theory claims that Africans and Australian Aborigines are more closely related to apes than Europeans are. Let's not pretend as though Ray Comfort actually cares about the plight of minorities. Comfort and Living Waters Ministry are simply co-opting the current social discord to fuel their own religious fervor. But it gets worse than that. Comfort is actually telling Christians that they shouldn't get caught up in the fight against racism. This is a direct quote from one of Comfort's own blog posts on the Living Waters website. That statement alone should tell you all that you need. What I recommend people do is to look for Ray Comfort's comments on race relations or racism outside of public outrage and to see if it's even on his radar. Something tells me that it's not even a footnote. I've got another question for the evolutionary chart or about the evolutionary chart. Oh boy, I sure hope the question is thoughtful and in good faith. If you study it, you never see a female in the chart. It's always male, standing with a white guy. Why isn't there a female here? Ah, I never would have pegged Ray for a fellow feminist. I'm exceedingly pleased that I, as a frail and very fragile woman, have someone in my corner arguing valiantly for female representation in the classic March of Progress cartoons. I guess Ray doesn't know how many of these things we have, and that we do indeed have some illustrations that feature a female in her ascent towards modern humanity. However, as thrilled as I am that Ray is a part of the all-consuming feminist agenda that will eventually overthrow the West, I have to raid on his parade a bit. 
biological anthropology or the study of human evolution is absolutely wrought with women. There is the work of Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey with extant primates, Mary Leakey with some of the most important fossil finds of the hominids, and the innumerable female anthropologists, paleontologists, and primatologists working today, some of them my very own professors. Or perhaps we could turn to one of the big three of the classic transitional fossils, and the only one to have an assigned sex, Lucy, the female specimen of Australopithecus afarensis and veritable poster child for paleoanthropology. I don't think we're lacking for women, be they human or more basal hominid. The BBC said in these unprecedented days that so many are demanding equality of the sexes, Darwin did believe that men were superior to women. Think about it, that racist chart. If they're going to put a female on the chart, where would they put her? Is it the beginning with that little bent over creature or halfway through or at the end? If they do, it's going to create a can of worms. People are going to say, why is the woman put there? Why isn't she here? I'm not really sure what Ray is going for. He seems utterly unaware that we have female specimens of many hominids, a relatively easy tell being the width of the pelvis. Being bipedal animals, the hominins, that is to say all of our primate relatives succeeding the human-chimp split, have a more narrow hip than the knuckle-walking or arboreal apes. This allows us to hold our weight directly above our legs and move around more efficiently. But bipedality and big brains can be a lethal combination. Big brains require wider hips, meaning there was a powerful selection for the widest possible hips in females while still maintaining locomotion efficiency on par with the males. It turns out this really just isn't all that much wider, but it is wide enough to measure. This allows us to tell the sex of specimens of hominins, and allows us to tell if the species exhibited sexual dimorphism by tracking other differences between males and females. Sometimes this difference is great, sometimes it isn't. But without the pelvis, it would be more difficult to tell. He is right that racism and sexism have no place in science, and Charles Darwin frequently gets pinned with accusations of both. Living in the 1800s, Darwin was absolutely a product of his time, as anyone alive in those days would invariably be. But although Darwin discussed the various proposed races of men and wrote about male superiority to females due in part to sexual selection, he was also a fierce abolitionist. His female colleagues in science additionally corresponded frequently with him, and Darwin's letters are filled with encouragement and support for them. Essentially, he probably was a little racist and sexist to our modern eyes, but it would have been relatively progressive for his time period. This can be investigated by anyone out there using the Darwin Correspondence Project website. And why is she there anyway? Because we know that men can't procreate without women and women without men. And so it's going to create a can of worms and sand very much like Genesis, that God created male and female in the beginning. Ah, yes, the classic misunderstanding. How is it that we get a male and female of each new species at the exact same time and place? It seems impossible. Well, similar to the speciation we see in organisms today, there is rarely a single generation that both progenates a new species and marks the first population considered reproductively isolated from the previous species. In fact, recent work in genetics has suggested that the Australopithecines could have perhaps interbred with the last common ancestor of humans and chimps, say Helanthropus chadensis, some three million years its senior. This potential hybridizability is the case with most species that cohabitate the Earth with members of its genera, particularly if they also inhabit the same part of the world. 
For every male member on the March of Progress, or the far more accurate phylogenetic trees of hominins, there was indeed a female. And for every female, there was a male. This is how ecology, speciation, and reproduction works, and has worked since the dawn of sexual reproduction. But the entire concept of there being a dawn of sexual reproduction is one that Ray is missing. Because he imagines that evolution predicts that one day a lizard will give birth to an elephant. His notion becomes all the sillier if it requires that breeding pairs pop out. But instead, evolution predicts that each child will inherit the traits of its parent or parents. The creatures that reproduce sexually have common ancestors that reproduced sexually. Once established, this trait was passed down to all of us. It didn't have to emerge from scratch over and over for each new species. This is why the question of one kind becoming another kind betrays a fundamental lack of understanding of what evolution actually predicts, perhaps in part due to that march of progress image. Descendants of eukaryotes will specialize eukaryote traits. Descendants of vertebrates will specialize vertebrate traits. Descendants of mammals will specialize mammal traits. Descendants of apes will specialize ape traits. But it seems like Ray, along with most creationists, really doesn't like the idea of his ancestors being monkeys and apes, and thus the idea of him being both a monkey and an ape. But while the fossil record, genetic data, and morphologic criteria are powerful reasons why all humans, including Ray, are indeed apes, we need not look any further than Ray's own obsession with bananas. With world events prompting heightened responses, it makes sense that Ray might try to appeal to the emotions surrounding the issues of racism and sexism for his own cause. But unfortunately, because Ray's understanding relies on inaccurate 60-year-old memes, his attacks miss the mark and fall flat. There are, perhaps... Interesting discussions to be had about the biological factors that contribute to gender roles or in-group, out-group dynamics. But first, we must recognize that biological evolution has never been about progress or strength. It is now, and has only ever been, an explanation for diversity. Thanks to Dragnot Silvis and Gutsik Gibbon for their help with today's segment. They're both excellent science communicators here on YouTube, though with drastically different styles. Check their links in the description to see what I mean, and tell them Paul Gia sent you. Up next on Evolution Exposed Exposed, Ray ponders... Another question I've had for years about evolution is this, and I've asked many people that say they believe in evolution, especially atheists. Here's hoping it's a good one, and that we can finally get Ray that answer he seeks. See you there. Later.